All right, well, it's great to see you guys. We're glad you're here this morning. Love y'all very much. Um, we're going we're gonna to jump into this in just a minute, um, a message really about Palm Sunday. That's what we're remembering historically. It's what we're celebrating today. Um, it's, it's the day that Jesus went riding into Jerusalem, and so we're going to talk about that together this morning um, as he was heading towards the cross. Um, and so what we're going to do is approach this in a little bit of a different way. Most of the message this morning, we're going to be looking back um, several centuries prior to Palm Sunday and uh, look at something really cool that took place um, in the Old Testament that was pointing towards Jesus and his arrival on this particular day and ultimately towards him coming as our Messiah. And so we're going to kind of go backwards, look at some stuff together. We're going to have a little bit of a history lesson almost this morning, if you will. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a Bible prophecy lesson this morning. And then we're going to talk about what is it that Jesus wants to say to us today in light of Palm Sunday and his arrival as our king. So are you all ready for this? Yeah, are you good? Um, you may want to take a few notes for this. If, if you're a note taker, go ahead and get your pen out and your notepad ready. Um, if you're not a note taker, um, these notes get posted midweek usually along with the audio of the sermon. And so you can check those out later. Um, I also just want to acknowledge up front before we jump into this, kind of just a special thanks to some places where I was kind of studying and digging into this. Um, there's a great book by Sir Robert Anderson, this is a guy who lived in the 1800s, um, and he wrote a book in 1894 called The Coming Prince. This guy ran Scotland Yard, and he went on this incredible journey digging into the stuff we're going to talk about this morning. And so he did a lot of research and a lot of digging historically to kind of unearth some really cool stuff we're going to look at. Um, I'm also really grateful for uh, Chuck Missler and my pastor, Steve Berger, who've taught on this topic, and I've learned a lot about it from them as well. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. So... Palm Sunday, um, the amazing prophecy, and then we'll talk about the amazing visit in just a minute. So here we go. Our story begins um, five and a half centuries before Jesus, about 550 years before he came. Um, and it begins in, um, in the life of Daniel. And so we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9 in just a moment. But at the beginning of that passage, Daniel is seeking the Lord. He's in prayer. And what has inspired this prayer is that he has paid attention to his Bible. He's paid attention to the scripture that he's got, and he's been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he knows that Jeremiah had talked about the captivity that God's people were in and had kind of said, it's going to last about this long. It's going to be this amount of time. And as he's reading the scripture, he's realizing we're getting close to the end of this captivity. God's doing something. And so he begins to press in and pray, not only about God, the thing we're asking you to do to set us free from this captivity, but he's even praying about the future. God, what are you going to do for us? What's in store? And so as he is in this place of prayer, um, there's, there's about three to four years left of their Babylonian captivity. And so he's praying in the middle of this prayer. The angel Gabriel shows up. Now, I don't know any of you Bible folks, does that name sound familiar to anybody? Gabriel shows up many years later to a young virgin named Mary and lets her know that she is going to be the one to give birth to the Son of God. Well, this same angel Gabriel shows up to Daniel and in the middle of this prayer and this conversation then with the angel Gabriel, 
Gabriel gives a very specific and clear prophecy of something God's going to do in the future. And so we're going to read just a portion of this. So in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, Gabriel's talking to Daniel and he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. That's talking of Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now this stuff's being written hundreds of years before Jesus, and it's already beginning to set the stage for what he's gonna come to do, to take care of our sins, to bring in righteousness. Then he goes on to say, know therefore and understand. Can you guys say know and understand? Pretty good. Y'all were even kind of in sync. That was pretty good. Good job. Know and understand. So this is, this is now something that not only Daniel is being told to know and understand, but he took the time to write this down. As the readers of this now, we are called to know and understand what Gabriel is talking about. So what are we supposed to know and understand? Here we go. We're supposed to know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, there's this concept of the 70 weeks that are determined for the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, throughout scripture, um, numbers in the Bible are important and they have meaning. And there are certain word pictures and concepts that are used throughout scripture that um, to, a, to a Jewish mind that knows God's word, they understand these things. And so, for example, like the number seven comes up a lot and represents completeness, wholeness, God finishing the work. Twelve comes up a lot. We just see these different numbers and they mean something. Well, another concept that means something is the idea of weeks. Weeks. It's like a seven, seven, the number seven period of time. And it could be literal weeks. It could be like days, months, or even years. It can mean different things. And so in this prophecy, because of what's happening here in Daniel, we recognize this as talking about weeks of years. So these would be seven year periods of time. Y'all with me so far? Okay, so he's talking about this concept of these 70 years. Now he says 70 weeks, and then he gets very specific in verse 25, talking about seven and 62. So let's look at these one more time together. Let's get a little more specific here. Verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, I'm not that great at math, so can somebody let me know what's 62 plus 7? Anybody willing to? 69. 69, there we go. Okay, 69. All right, so we've got that little bit of math going at least. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So here's the deal. Here's the prophecy. There's going to be a specific command to rebuild Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. The wall was down and God's people were in captivity. And so Daniel's looking into the future and Gabriel says there is going to be an official command that will go out to commission the rebuild of Jerusalem. And specifically the rebuilding of the walls is talked about there. And then he says from that moment when that command takes place, 
then the Messiah is going to show up on the scene. So let's just unpack this a little bit together. So we're going to give you a little bit of a visual so you can kind of see this. If you're like me, I kind of have to see stuff. Um, so this is going to be up on the slide. So let's look at this. So we've got seven weeks and 62 weeks, which we've determined is 69. And so these are 69 periods of seven years from the time that the command goes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Are y'all with me so far? Okay, so let's keep going here. So if we take those 69 periods of time and we multiply them by seven year increments, I won't make you do that math, we'll do it for you. All right, it comes to 483 years. 483 years. Now, our calendar today is different than the official Jewish calendar, the traditional calendar that they would follow. They would follow a 360-day calendar. So to be accurate and to be specific, we're going to take our 483 years and we're going to multiply them by a 360-day ancient Jewish calendar. And did anybody do that math in your head? I know it's up on the screen, so you can cheat. All right. I you had it in your head, Alex. I've always known you to be really sharp at like adding up numbers really quick in your head. All right, we've got 173,880 days. That's a big number. That's a lot of days. And that's very specific. So that number of days from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. Now check this out. This is where it gets really cool. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah receives a command. Now, we're not going to read the whole passage, but if you want to go back and do some extra digging, if you look in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 2 gives us some very specific information. It tells us who the king was at the time, and it tells us what year of his reign it was. And then if we read from verses 1 through verse 8, we see this conversation that transpires between Nehemiah and the king that had them captive at the time, who was, who was then commissioning an order for Nehemiah to take and rebuild the wall. And so if we do the math, this is historical. This isn't just from Scripture. From Scripture, we see who the king is and what year of his reign was. This was King Artaxerxes. This king, historically, we can track and see. You can look this up in like Encyclopedia Britannica or something. What year he came into power, B.C. And then you could do the math and go, he's this many years into his reign and figure this out. Nehemiah received that command about 100 years after this prophecy from King Artaxerxes on March 14th, 445 B.C. It's a specific date we can track. Pretty cool, right? Okay, so... Let's do the math. I'm sure you're already doing this in your head and adding it up and going, okay, March 14th, 445 BC, that comes to? Jacob, we'll go ahead and let him cheat. Let's roll to the next slide. If we count forward ahead those 173,880 days, we arrive at April 6, 32 AD. Y'all tracking with me so far? We've got this date historically in time. We fast forward. Well, what is that date? Well, let's check this out. In, in Luke chapter 3, in Luke's gospel, Luke, being the physician that he is, he was pretty detail-oriented. And he made some really specific notes about things that were going on. And one of the things that he did is he was very specific about um, an important fact, that Caesar Tiberius 
was in his 15th year of his reign as Caesar, the year that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. Now, that baptism signified the start of something. What did that signify the start of? His public ministry. His public ministry lasted about three and a half years. During his ministry, four different Passovers took place. So after he gets baptized by John, a short time after that, probably a few months after that, Passover arrives. And that is in the year. Well, let me back up. I wanted y'all to see this. Historically, you can look up and find that the reign of Caesar Tiberius began. He was coronated on August 19th, 14 A.D. And so as Luke tells us, it was 15 years into his ministry. Then Jesus was baptized in the, or the Passover after Jesus' baptism took place in the spring of 29 A.D. Y'all tracking with me? 14, 15, 29? I know we're like stretching our math brains here a little bit. You can go back later and get your calculator out if you want to check this. So, okay, that's interesting. 29 A.D., Jesus begins his ministry. Well, if we roll forward several years now, in the process of Jesus' ministry, we arrive to his fourth Passover. The fourth Passover of Jesus' ministry was the day he was crucified, April 10th, 32 AD. Okay, well, if we back up from that day that he was crucified to that Sunday when he came rolling into Jerusalem, we arrive at April 6th, 32 AD. Now, I don't know if you just caught everything that I just said. So let me just summarize it for you. Daniel, living in captivity 550 years before Jesus arrived, has a visitation in his prayer time from an angel who tells him two specific pieces of information. A command is going to go out to rebuild Jerusalem. And then this many years later, the Messiah is going to show up. And historically, we can check those two dates. And to the day, 173,000 some odd days to the day from the time Artaxerxes told Nehemiah, go and rebuild Jerusalem, to the day that Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey while people are doing what? They're worshiping. In fact, they're proclaiming something very specific about him. Let's check this out. In Luke's gospel, chapter 19, as he is riding into town, we're just going to pick it up in verse 37. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Church, something significant was happening on that day. And there's several things that point to the significance of it. Okay, first of all, Jesus is fulfilling another prophecy that's in the Old Testament that said he would ride, the Messiah would show up on a donkey. And here he is riding into town on a donkey. 
Secondly, his disciples, unprompted, uninstructed by Jesus, begin to worship and they pick a very specific phrase. That is in quotations there in verse 38 because they are quoting from a psalm that was known as a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that was praising the future coming Messiah. And so they are quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting that psalm and acknowledging Jesus as not just a king, the king. This is the promised Messiah. So Jesus is fulfilling not only this ancient prophecy from Daniel, he's fulfilling prophecies from Zechariah riding into town on this donkey. His disciples are feeling and recognizing the significance of the moment and they are praising him and declaring his glory, quoting a messianic psalm. And if that's not enough, what are the Pharisees doing? Y'all have heard me say this before. The Pharisees are always a really good indication when something is up. When they, when they freak out, it's because something important is happening. Now we need to understand something. One of the things that made it so heartbreaking that the Pharisees missed who Jesus is. It's not just that he was fulfilling all these prophecies. They knew the time was ripe. Now, I don't know if they had done all the math and had it down to the day, but they knew that this was the season. They knew that the time was ripe, that Messiah was supposed to be showing up. People were on edge for that. In fact, that's what was so attractive about John the Baptist. There were people that were thinking, he's the one. People were wondering that. And then when Jesus showed up on the scene, there's even a moment where John and just his own struggles of being in prison and struggling, he's going, Jesus, are you the one or is there another? Like, I need some encouragement here, man. And Jesus told his followers, go tell them the things that you've seen that I've done to instill some confidence in John. And so the, the season is right. The time is right. The problem is the Pharisees are angry. Jesus isn't benefiting them. He's not glorifying them, their position of influence and power is actually being called out by him because they've been abusing it. And so they're furious. There is no confusion about what the Pharisees are thinking. They know that his disciples are saying, here comes the king. They know that his disciples are crying out, here comes the Messiah. And they are saying, you got to shut them up. This is blasphemy is what they're thinking. Does Jesus say, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to offend. They, they spoke out of place. No, he says this moment is so powerful and so specific and so significant that if they closed their mouths, the earth itself would cry out, here's our king. Whew. This is the day. Jesus, over and over again in his ministry, would stop people from calling him the king or the Messiah. Have y'all noticed that through scripture? He would tell people, in fact, he'd even do something miraculous and he'd tell people, shh, shh, I wanted to help you, but like, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. In fact, two different times in John's gospel, he records where people actually tried to go ahead and take him and make him king by force. Let's check a couple of these out. First one's in John chapter six, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He wasn't running away from being king. He knew the timing wasn't right. 
This isn't my moment. And not only that, this isn't how it's going to happen. I'm not that kind of king yet. Yet. He's going to come in all his power and in all his glory and in all his authority and reign supreme forever. And every knee then will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We won't be able to deny it. But that wasn't what he was coming to do right now. As Daniel was told by Gabriel, he's coming to deal with our sin. He's coming to deal with the consequence of our sin and provide his righteousness that we can't earn on our own. Amen, Manuel. We need to acknowledge that. That's what he was coming to do. And so he said, no, not yet. Then one chapter later in John chapter 7, verse 30, here's another example. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. See, not only did they try to make him king, the Pharisees tried to get rid of him a few times. Some folks tried to run him off a cliff once. It wasn't his time to be made king and it wasn't his time to die yet. It was about this day, this moment in time on Palm Sunday. He is fulfilling a very specific prophecy. He's the chosen one of God who's come as our Messiah. And so he comes riding into town on that donkey and it breaks loose. People are declaring and celebrating and praising and the Pharisees are panicking and freaking out. And Jesus doesn't stop the crowd. He lets them declare the significance of the moment. In fact, not only does he let it take place, but he himself acknowledging the power of the moment beyond just saying these rocks would cry out. Look what he says immediately following that in Luke 19, verse 41. Jacob, I'm skipping around a little bit, buddy. Luke 19, verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the, thing that made for, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This was a specific day. This was their day where their Messiah was showing up. Their king was riding into town. And he came to make peace for them. And they didn't see it. And it broke his heart. It broke his heart as he sees that they're missing it. They're missing their moment. It goes on a couple verses later and says they didn't see the time of their visitation. Their Messiah had come in the flesh for them and they couldn't see it. They missed it. And what I love about this phrase that Jesus uses, he doesn't say in this my day. He says in this your day. This is your day. He came riding into Jerusalem for them and for all of us. He loves us and he arrived on the scene at that specific moment heading towards the cross for each and every one of us out of his great love to redeem and to heal and restore and they missed it. So beyond being, man, I hope amazed. Some of you guys might be familiar with this. Some of this might be brand new to you. I get goosebumps every time I look at this passage. I mean, Jesus has fulfilled a lot of prophecies. They're, they're pretty incredible. But how specific this one is, I mean, I just get like, whew. God, that's amazing. It's amazing. I want to stand in awe of that. 
I'm grateful for the significance of that day. I'm grateful that the Lord has given us, I mean, I almost feel like it would diminish it to call them little breadcrumbs, but he's given us this trail that leads to the truth, that gives us a sense of confidence and assurance that he is who he says he is, that he, that he did what he said he was going to do, and therefore he's going to do the things he has promised that he will do in the future. I'm grateful for that. But I also think it's, it's significant for us today, not just because it's Palm Sunday, but it's significant for us today to recognize the invitation that's here. People were missing this for a few reasons. When Jesus arrived on the scene, some were questioning it. I mean, if we read through some of the other gospel accounts, even beyond Luke's account, we sort of hear some different voices on the scene. And there are some people that are just genuinely clueless. They don't know what's happening. They're asking questions. They're unsure. What's going on with this? This is kind of strange. What's happening? They're questioning and they're uncertain and they're, they're missing it. The truth is right there and available and they're missing it. And they're wondering and they're questioning. Others are scoffing and angry. I mean, the Pharisees are discouraged by what's happening because of what they're losing. It's costing them something. I mean, they freak out. At one point they go, the whole world's going after this guy. We're losing our influence. We're losing our power. And so they scoffed. This is absurd. That's not who he is. They weren't just questioning. They flat out denied the reality of who Jesus is. They were more wrapped up in their own gain and, and their own personal concerns for their life and the power and the control that they wanted. And so they scoffed. They missed it. They actually hated him and wanted him gone. They were so angry. But listen, I have to tell you, there were also some people there who were worshiping and they were confused. They were confused about what Jesus came to do. They're not just thinking our Messiah is riding into town. They're thinking like the king is riding into town. He's conquering. We're going to be free of this Roman oppression. Our king is coming to establish his throne and his authority. And oh, by the way, I've been hanging out with him for about three years. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a pretty great seat on that leadership team that he's assembling, right? All these years of, you know, wandering around with him, you know, we experienced the, the whole, the, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Like we've done all that. Now we're stepping into the palace. It's all going to be worth it. They're looking for a physical king to come and change their circumstances, to change the, the slavery that they're under to the Romans. But listen, the slavery that God's people experienced physically throughout the years in Egypt, in their Babylonian captivity, underneath the rule of the Roman Empire, every bit of that was always just a picture and a representation of the real weight of slavery that they had been under. And that was their bondage to sin and the consequences of that in their life. And even the things that Jesus had established that the Father had spoken through the Old Testament giving them pictures of how their sin was atoned for and covered. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. And so even the ones who were excited and worshiping him were kind of in it for their circumstances to change. They were in it with their own kind of selfish motivations. They missed it. 
The reality is, even in the midst of the confusion, he was worshiped. And so the first thing that I hope that we can see this morning is we're kind of, what's the point of application for us? And when we see Jesus for who he is, when he arrives on the scene, our first reaction is worship. Stand in awe, acknowledge, recognize the king, recognize the Messiah that he's here and that he loves us. The psalmist writes and says, this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and what? Be glad in it. Be glad in it. Yes, there was a specific historical moment happening there. But church, I would just propose to you, Jesus shows up every day. Part of what he's done by his finished work on the cross is we now have a savior that lives forever. And he is present and he loves us. In fact, he invites us to abide in him. And so every day with him is this your day. It's not just because today is Palm Sunday. On the random Tuesday this week when you're just going about your day, this is your day. And in fact, it's the only one you've got. We only have right now, this moment, this present day. Thankfully in Jesus, I have eternity with him. But on this earth, I'm, I've got right now. And right now today, he is present and he loves me. And he's here to visit with me and be present in my life. And the first call is to say, Jesus, you're my king and I worship you. I worship you. The next thing to do is to bring our questions and doubts to him. We've got them. We've got them before we come to Jesus. And if we're being honest, we have them after we start following him. I find myself a lot like John the Baptist at times. God, I'm in that place where I just, I feel like I'm stuck. I'm in prison. I'm in captivity. And God, I'm going like, is this real? Are, are you real? Do you really have me? Do you love me? Are, are you the king right here, right now? And he's here to say, yes, yes. I love you. I'm present. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm right here in the middle of that with you today. And so let's bring our questions and bring our doubts to our king. He's present and he's real and he loves us. Finally, we can bring the reality of what we want and then move into the reality of what he's really here to do. I can bring the reality of what I want. God, here's the circumstances of my life. Here's what's happening. Here's what I'm happy about. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where I've got some hopes and dreams for, for my family or for my kids. Or God, I'm looking for my future spouse. Or Lord, I'm, I'm prayerful about this job situation. Or God, we're struggling with this illness. Or Lord, there's this turmoil in this relationship and I need help. Like we can bring those circumstances to him. He cares. And he hears those prayers and he meets those needs. But I can tell you, primarily what Jesus does is what he came to do then. Primarily, he comes into our life to change us. He may change our circumstances. He often does. But usually what he's up to when he visits us moment by moment, day by day, 
He doesn't just show up and just keep changing our circumstances all the time. He says, no, I want to come into your life and into your heart, and I want to change you. I want to radically heal you. I want to radically set you free from sin and bondage, from guilt that maybe you're carrying that you don't need to carry anymore, from a sin that's, that's yes, maybe you've been forgiven big picture and you've received grace, but man, you've got this one particular thing that has just eaten your lunch. There's this thing that has got a hole and it's been a battle and a struggle. It may be an addiction or just, just some sin that you're just sick of. Man, I, my, mine is, I just, I get frustrated and angry. And usually it's directly related to I want to control things. I like it when everything is nice and neat and in order. Anybody that's ever helped me set up the curtains or chairs in here, you can just go ahead and shout your amen. Like, you know it. Like, I just, it's got to be just right. Thanks, Rob. We're, we're kindred spirits there, bro. I, but I want things in order. But here's the problem. Life doesn't work like that very often. And my problem is the people closest to me get the brunt of that. I mean, I had to go to Ashley a day ago, two days ago, and apologize yesterday, right? Yeah, I just lost it. I've been working all day. I was busy doing some stuff. My garage was a disaster. And I come in after all that, and there's just this little frustrating moment, and I just, I lose it on my daughter. My anger comes out. It's like, God, I want that to be gone. I'm tired of being so wanting to control things and arrange things just my way that when something gets in the way of that, I lose it. I want that sin broken in my life. I don't want to just settle for that and go, oh, well, I'm just going to lose it every now and then. My family just has to deal with it when their dad gets pissed. Sorry, I probably shouldn't say that in a sermon. When their dad gets angry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thank you for for a little grace. Apparently there's two sins I need to confess this morning. (laughs) My language and my anger. But, But listen, I want to be free of that. And I'm thankful in Jesus. You know, I could, I could go to bed at night and go, God, would you just change my daughter and her attitude? Lord, could my house with six kids just be a little more organized? Does it really have to be chaos sometime with all these kids? Or I can say, God, would you change me? Lord, can I be a part of creating a home where there's love, there's care, there's patience, there's acceptance, even some of the things that need to change? God, would I teach those from the vantage point of wanting to benefit my kids and help them later in life, not because they're annoying me. There's a big difference. If I'm parenting out of my annoyance versus out of wanting my kids to grow and be who God's called them to be, that changes everything. And so Jesus, would you change me? Would you change my heart? God, would you forgive me where I've blown it? And God, would you root this out? I want to be done with it. And so if we would see who our Savior is and what he comes to do, man, we can worship him and we can bring our questioning and our doubts and our struggles. We can bring our circumstances and he will change them. But we can come and bring our hearts real and honest. Hopes, dreams, desires, wounds, sins and say, oh, Jesus, would you be my king? God, I want today to be this my day. Lord, I want a little more of the taste of the freedom and the life that you have for me today. Set me free. Make me whole. God, I confess that I need you. I receive and accept the free gift of love and grace that you have given. 
God, it takes a little faith to believe that that's real, but thank you that you give me the gift of faith. And so, God, I receive that gift of faith from you. I want to unpack that gift that you've given me and accept your grace and your mercy and your new life. I don't want to just live in a constant state of need to be forgiven. His grace does do that work of forgiving me. But I, I get to live a life filled with grace that empowers me to live in some freedom to take some territory, to walk in victory. Listen, our king is here and his kingdom is at work. You know how he's taken territory? One heart and one life at a time that is becoming more and more fully surrendered to our King Jesus. That's how he's taken territory. And so we can participate in that by letting him do that in our lives. And then guess what? We should have the same eyes for our family and our community and our city that Jesus had for his. He wants to visit Knoxville. He wants to visit your home. He wants to visit your kids, your spouse, your coworkers. You know how he wants to do that? Through you. We are called the body of Christ. And this earth gets a visit from Jesus every day when his church wakes up and starts their day, worships their king, brings in the reality of their life and their heart, and then goes forth into this world to help others have a visit with Jesus. Oh, that our hearts would break for those who are hungering and thirsting to see something real, life-giving. Listen, our, our country is crying out for love and for peace. They just have no clue how to get it. They think it's through a motto or a slogan or something and they're missing the boat completely. That love and that peace and that unity, it's available in Jesus Christ. And the church could be more about sharing that than just standing in judgment. We should speak what's true so people can experience new life and freedom in Jesus so they can be invited into God's love. Every single one of us gets to participate in his daily visitation to this earth. Every single one of us. Each day is this your day. My hope, my prayer is that I will live more and more like that every day, that you will. I don't, I don't share this to put obligation on us. I don't. I share it so we hear the invitation from Jesus. I want to visit you today is what he's saying. I want to breathe life into you. And then, man, if you carry me around through your day, you can share that with the people around you. And you can have my eyes to see your family and your friends and your community the way I see them. And you can participate in sharing my life with the world around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love that is on display in so many ways. God, I thank you for your love that we see at work and the way that you have an element of destiny about you. God, that you took time to speak to the prophets of old. You even sent your messengers to declare hidden, secret, beautiful things about our King who has come once and is coming again. Jesus, we thank you that you have fulfilled so much prophecy already that we can, we can stand on solid footing just being in awe 
of what you have accomplished, of what you have fulfilled. And we can have eager anticipation because there's a whole lot left you've got yet to do. There's some prophecies that are yet fulfilled because you're coming back again for us one day. And Jesus, we're thankful. And Lord, today, God, right here today, we don't want to miss our visitation. God, we want this day, Palm Sunday, 2017, to be our day. But Lord, we pray that tomorrow, some random Monday in April, that when we get to tomorrow, that day would be our day where you're there and you're present and you're with us, working and moving in our hearts and lives and God working out of us to love on our family and friends and community and the world writ large. God, would you make yourself known? Lord, I pray we wouldn't miss it. God, I pray we don't miss that your little, your little moments of visitation throughout each and every one of our days. But God, we could see you real and glorious and present. God, that we would worship you and we would invite you in. Jesus, we love you this morning. We just want to publicly acknowledge together what we're remembering and celebrating this week. Your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Jesus, this week as we reflect on that, would you just do a fresh work in our hearts? Would you reveal in a, in a not a different way that changes the gospel, but in a fresh way to our hearts, God, your incredible love for us, what you have done and are doing in our lives. God, we look forward to celebrating you together next Sunday as we celebrate our risen King who is alive and loves us. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.